Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. In all of his freelance writing, Craig periodically uh, will appear with a byline in the Washington Post, as he did recently. A interesting topic, one we haven't had a chance to dive into fully here on the podcast. I'm sure we will eventually, but... Seminole gaming, casino, and big changes to sports gambling in the state uh, for 2021. What interested me, you know, the Seminole tribe, they uh, they own the Hard Rock chain, which mm-hmm. means they own 12 casinos, six of them in Florida. They uh, they reap, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars from this, that thanks to this new gambling compact they've signed with the state, which has been approved by the governor and the legislature, they're poised to make a lot more money off of controlling all online sports betting in Florida. And yet there was a report to Congress in 1913 about the Seminoles that said gambling is unknown among them. And I thought, well, that's a story I need. Mm -hmm. I want to write about how they went from that to where they are today. And so the, the story is sort of a history lesson for people in how, you know, the Seminoles, the unconquered people, as they call themselves, because they never signed a peace treaty with the United States, how they went from being, these small villages by the side of the Tamiami Trail offering gator wrestling shows and little souvenir knickknacks that they made, how they went from that to, you know, being these kings and queens of, of the casino yeah. uh, all over the place. And I, I actually, because I was reporting it, I went to the Tampa Hard Rock Casino and spent a couple hours walking around there and, you know, jotting down notes and so mm-hmm. forth. So I got to see Elvis's gold-plated piano and Prince's little tiny shoes that he wore for dancing and lots mm. of other cool stuff like that. But you had to really look if you wanted to find stuff relating to the Seminoles themselves. Yeah. And, yeah. and so if you go in through the Lucky Street garage entrance, you'll see all these historic photos. They're in sort of a dimly lit hallway, but it shows, you know, it shows them from back in the early 1900s, you know, building a chicky hut or carving at a dugout canoe, that kind of stuff. Yeah. This gambling compact seemed to come out of nowhere. It was passed in a hot minute, if I don't recall correctly, after the regular legislative session. It just like came and it was not on the radar screen at all. In in a previous life, I, I, I was working in sports radio and there was no sense that sports gaming in the state that that I had was anywhere on the horizon. And then boom, it's not only on the horizon, it's here. It's signed into law. Help people understand what this means exactly, where it came from. Well, okay, two things. One is, you know, the Supreme Court made it okay to have sports betting. Yeah. So that's number one. So suddenly all that money is out there and people want to get at it. But the other thing, too, was the Seminoles had a compact with, with the state of Florida it was signed by uh, then Governor Charlie Crist that where they would they would share the money with the state. Well, in 2019, the Seminoles got ticked off at the state of Florida because they felt like the state was not enforcing part of the compact that that basically prevented anyone from competing with them for the certain games of chance that they played. OK, they thought that the paramutuals, you know, the, the horse tracks and dog tracks. Mm-hmm getting it getting to, to cut into their business and they wanted the state to stop it and the state wouldn't so they quit paying that money to the state of florida and it was millions of dollars i forget right off the top of my head but it was like 300 million or something like oh that. my gosh they just cut them off and so the state officials had a strong incentive to cut a new deal and bring that money back and the sports betting thing sort of pushed it over the line so they could finally do it because the legislators have been talking for years about passing a 
a whole new gambling bill to regulate gambling gambling mm-hmm. in Florida. It was sort of a cynical game where they they would go to the the dog tracks and and say, "Oh, uh, you know, we're we're considering a bill to regulate you guys and clamp down on you. Don't you want to make a campaign contribution?" And then <laughs> and then they go to the then they go to the anti dog track people and sort of say the same thing. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they did need to pass this gambling bill, and they did. And there's lots of money involved. Very questionable constitutionality because there was a 2018 voter referendum that passed by more than 70 percent that said if there's any new casinos in Florida, the voters have to approve it first. And this would allow new casinos to be built in Florida as well. Hmm. So lots of lawsuits, you know, lawsuits have already been filed. There's a rival effort to pass a new constitutional amendment that's being backed by a couple of big sports betting companies, DraftKings and and another one. It's not a done deal uh, by any means. Hmm. Well, for updates on stories like that, all of Craig's writing, whether it's for the Washington Post or National Geographic or Florida Phoenix's weekly column, best place to stay up to date on that is on Twitter at Craig Times. This week's guest is a real departure for us, one I am greatly looking forward to. Bob Keeling is a Florida author. What we are going to talk about specifically is his 2016 book, Life of the Party, the remarkable story of how Brownie Wise built and lost a Tupperware empire. If you can't find it at your local independent bookstore, Amazon will have it. And Craig, until you sent me the email with Bob's name, I had never heard of the name Brownie Wise, nor did I know Florida was the headquarters of Tupperware. Yeah, it's a sort of a hidden gem, one of the many, many hidden bits of history around Florida. And it's a fascinating story, really it is. And Bob, Bob does a great job of telling it. Yeah. And we'll get into that right now. Bob, I have to ask you, you, you know, as a former TV reporter and as someone who has written books on Jack Kerouac in Florida, Elvis in Florida, uh, Graham Parsons, what attracted you to this story? Because it seems so different from the other things you, you've done. Craig, I tell people that I'm a five alarm fire history geek, and I, I'm absolutely <laughs> guilty of that. And what I saw uh, a piece on PBS about Brownie Wise, I'm thinking to myself, why in the world have I never heard of her? And then it was, why in the world would someone who was such an obvious trailblazer get fired and written out of the company history? And I thought that would be a really interesting story to pursue. And I was right. Tell now tell us a little bit about, about Brownie. She she was both a star, but also she had sort of a hidden hidden life going on too, right? Well, Brownie's such an, a, a compelling, you know, character because after all, she was a, a big wig at a major international company in the deep South. And we're talking in the early fifties when most people would be like, uh, honey, you know, mm-hmm. you should be in the <laughs> kitchen. Uh, mm-hmm. And why but, aren't you married? <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. you're divorced. Oh, But Brownie started out, you know, she was uh, in a small town in Georgia, minimally educated. Her mother was divorced, but she was a speech maker for um, the Hatmakers Union. So her mom, Rose, would go out on the road. She'd give speeches. And that's how Brownie learned her um, motivational techniques, which became very important later on in Tupperware. And even though she wasn't long on uh, formal education, she was a genius at motivation. And she realized that the main motivator for salespeople was recognition. And she was an expert on motivating people, getting them out to sell. I saw one quote 
in the book where it says, um, God gives birds food, but he doesn't throw it in the nest for them. Now, does he? <laughs> and uh, so, so Brownie's an amazing, compelling figure. And to think that much of her legacy is drawn in pre-Disney Orlando, that's a big reason that, that it drew me into this story. How did she get to Florida and to Tupperware? Brownie started out as a sales, uh, as a as a secretary at Bendix in suburban Detroit. Uh, her husband was very unstable, Robert Wise, likely an undiagnosed mental illness, and he'd gotten violent. So those two split up. Hmm. Brownie is uh, raising her son alone. And she said, I wasn't some kind of liberator. I just had a kid to support and I need to get out and make <laughs> some money. So she's a secretary at Bendix. One day, a guy comes knocking on her door. He's a salesman from Stanley Home Products. If you remember, you know, the dowdy brooms and mops and cleansers and all that uh-huh. stuff. And the guy's presentation is so fumbling uh-huh. that Brownie herself <laughs> says, hell, I could do better than this. <laughs> and that's how it starts. So she starts out as a salesperson for Stanley Home Products and starts rallying the troops. And it's very much the primer for what she did later at Tupperware. But because she went on the Stanley pilgrimage where you'd go every year to get training back east, she talks to Frank Stanley Beveridge, the man, and tells him about her designs to move up in the company. And she gets the honey management is no place for you. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, she was not happy about that. So when she came back to Detroit, she started incorporating this, this new product, that one of her associates had brought to her called Tupperware. And they thought, hey, this would be a great demonstration product, which is essentially what they did with Stanley products, you know, selling them. But this product was revolutionary, number one, because it worked. You know, you had the famous, you know, burp on the seal, which (laughs) Earl Earl Tupper uh, designed after a paint can. And it worked. And and coming out of World War II, people were looking for ways to stretch the budget further. So that's how Brownie started in Tupperware. And Tupper's back east and his product's really not selling that well because it's still mostly in the department stores and nobody knows what the hell to do with it. They don't know how to make the seal. But his market research, he's like, wait, there's this person out in Michigan selling a boatload of it. So he sends his guy out there and they sit her down And they basically say, what the hell are you doing to move so much Tupperware? (laughs) And she talks about how they're selling it as part of a home party. And they would actually do the demonstration of how to to burp, you know, the lid uh, to keep the food fresh. And they offered Brownie, the salesman, uh, the, the representative for Tupperware, offered Brownie the entire state of Florida. Wow. And so she moved down in about 1951 and started selling and then being a franchisee back in 51 and everything started from there. I love the picture in the book of her, her first little storefront place in, uh, was it Fort Lauderdale? I think. Yeah. Patio parties. So, yep. Right it along. US so modest. <laughs> it was, it, it was, I mean, it really started from very modest beginnings and uh, it just blew up from there. And again, she, just was able to rally the troops and get the motivation as such that as she opens up her distributorship down there, she can't get enough product. 
and she's not happy about it. And so what does Brownie do? She calls Tupper at the main office. <laughs> Bring him 51, and this is their first interaction together. And Brownie's like, put me through to Mr. Tupper. I, I've got to talk to him. And so he picks up the phone. <laughs> And she's like, this is Brownie Wise from, from Fort Lauderdale. And, and, and Tupper's like, uh, I know who you are. And she's like, I can't get enough product for my distributors. And this is a problem. This is a big problem. So, you know, Brownie was not shy about making her feelings known. What Tupper did was he brought her and several of his other top distributors to a meeting in Long Island. And it was there in the spring of 51 that they convinced him to pull all of his product off the shelves and just do it, just sell it as a home demonstration product. Amazing. Amazing. And which revolutionized not only Tupperware, but sort of revolutionized American society by putting women in, in charge of selling this product. Right. Well, that's At a time when most right. women didn't work outside the home. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and like Brownie would always say, I wasn't a liberator. I had a kid to raise. I needed to make money and I went out and made it. But it, it definitely had a revolutionizing effect of getting women out of the kitchen. And often the recruiters, if they happen to be women, would bring their husbands along. And if there was a woman they wanted to recruit as a potential dealer, they would also ask her husband for his permission to do that. So they were very wise in terms of not threatening the man who was still the, the key figure in the home and saying, you know, look what this could do. You know, if she had made a little of her own money, maybe you could buy that second car you're looking for. Maybe you could go on that vacation you've always wanted. So they were very cagey in trying not to be threatening to the man of the house when recruiting the woman of the house to perhaps get out of the kitchen and go make some money of her own. How did she find these distributors, the, the salespeople under her eventually, and, and for starters, just her sales clients? Well, she was a, a very shrewd recruiter. And going back to her day, days at Stanley, they had a certain set of guidelines as to people that they would watch out for as uh, uh, potential dealers. You know, they, they would have to be outgoing. They needed money. You know, maybe it's uh, um, someone who just had a particular sparkle that they felt uh, could be trained and then recruited in. And that's how it started. And it would just uh, build that way. But like when they would have these parties, they'd have, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people there. And they always had an eye out for other people who were responding warmly to the product as potential new dealers. And then as dealers were successful, they became managers and just worked their way up from there until they ended up becoming a distributor, which Brownie was at the beginning. And that's that's really where the money now, was. Now, was this multi-level marketing, essentially? No, no. I, I don't think so. Because remember, you had this proprietary product from Earl Tupper that worked. That's the important part. It did exactly what they said it was going to do. And everybody profited. Everybody did well and everybody was offering others a hand up because everyone benefited from that. So in, in the sense, it's very much Americana of, you know, helping your neighbor and let's all benefit together. So it wasn't like it was some sort of scam that really didn't work. It was just sort of predicated on bringing more and more people in. The, the, you know, the bottom line was Tupperware became so ubiquitous in all of our American homes because it worked. Yeah. At what point did did Tupper Tupper decide to move 
the whole operation to, to Florida to base it. Well, he he had been looking for a southern base of operations. And, and this is funny because Brownie was had her eye on this lovely seaside parcel of land not far from her home in, in South Florida. And, and just how typical of Tupper and his Spartan New Englander, no nonsense type attitude that he's looking at a parcel of land in, in, in uh, Stark, Florida, the home <laughs> of the state prison yeah. and, and the electric chair and everything else. But fortunately they, they settled on land that Earl Bronson had for sale along the Orange Blossom Trail, just um, south of pre-Disney Orlando. And the reason it was so attractive to Tupper was because Florida was a non-union state. And that's, uh, that's a, the main reason why they decided to settle in Florida. And he put Brownie in charge as, as general manager at the end of 1951. Kind of ironic given her mom's background. Well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, at the beginning, it was very Spartan. You know, as Tupper had bought the land, but it wasn't ready yet. And they were having to build their headquarters. So they actually spent what I call their freshman year at a at an airplane hangar at what is now Orlando Executive Airport. <laughs> and it was just Brownie and her young associate, Gary McDonald, and a uh, bookkeeper. And that was it. And Gary told me about driving the first truckload of Tupperware into this old airplane hangar. You know, they, they wow. set out their shingle and that is Tupperware home parties. <laughs> from which the the multi-billion dollar company uh, sprung as we know it today. How at its peak, how big did this, the, just specifically the home party piece of it, Tupperware is obviously still a company, you can still buy Tupperware, but this iteration of it selling in homes direct to consumer that way, how big did that get? Well, it was interesting to watch the success of the company via their newsletters that they would have come out and they would talk about uh, the milestones of passing 5,000 dealers, then 10,000 dealers. And then I think they got up to 20,000. And uh, again, it was because the product worked and people were, there were some people who were so motivated by Brownie, especially the women. I, I was in the Smithsonian and I was lucky enough to research the letters that would come in, the, the the memos between Earl Tupper and Brownie Wise, she would get letters from her dealer saying, I'm so sorry, I could only do three parties over the weekend because my mom had a stroke <laughs> and was in the hospital. I mean, there were some of them that would have seven and eight parties a day. My God. And Brownie would give away the dress off her back as a as a dealer incentive prize. And there were women who would try to lose 20 to 30 pounds to fit into it. So that's the kind of pull she had with her dealers and giving her genius for motivation and communication. That's why the success of the company just mushroomed in the mid-50s. You mentioned about the dress. Talk a little bit about the other incentives she she gave to, to people who were selling her product. For instance, the, oh, yeah. the, the trips to Florida. Oh, sure. And, and of course, don't forget, you know, the, the, the pink Cadillac long before Mary Kay Ash, by the way. Ah. <laughs> and, you know, you talk about the trips to Florida and they would have what's called the annual Jubilee, ostensibly to recognize the dealers who had done well. But most people came down on their own dime to wow. be trained and to learn the latest sales techniques. So they had a real stake in doing well. But yeah, the ones who did the best 
would be brought down. And I, I remember one of my favorite things was the highest performing dealers were given a, a this like this gold shovel and and Brownie and her people had actually buried these gifts on the property of the new Tupperware Home Parties building. So they're out in the sun. It's August, you know, of whenever that was, 52 or three, it doesn't matter. And, and you know, there were people digging up, like one Faye Macalupo from Buffalo, New York, digs up a model of a car, which represents the real car that she's just won. Oh, my. <laughs> and she's like splayed out across this car, you know, suffering borderline heat exhaustion, <laughs> mumbling, I love everybody. I love everybody. You know, there, there were fur coats buried. There were diamond rings buried, some of which people swear were never dug up. Uh, it oh might my. still be there, you know, somewhere. <laughs> but there, not only was the motivation, you know, just that was just genius. It was great film and video for the for the networks back in the day so that that caught on too with cbs and all of that and of course now she becomes brownie kind of like madonna or Cher. (laughs) she was just known by the one name she was the person that they concentrate on in the publicity and tupper gave the go-ahead on that initially but then the friction started with the two because tupper thought okay it started to be more about her than my baby, which is the product. Did that happen gradually or all at once? Was there like a a moment or was it sort of just over time it became more her than Tupperware? It's it's a little bit of both. Um, If you read my Life of the Party book, you will see that there were um, actually some distributors who became jealous of Brownie and tried to stage a revolt. And it turned into very you know, cloak and dagger clandestine stuff from Brownie and her team, you know, wearing hidden microphones and figuring out who the traders were. So you had that. And then you, um, Brownie wrote a self-help book that was published in 1957 called Best Wishes. Now today, for any woman executive leaning in to a position, an Oprah or Martha Stewart, it's almost expected that you write something like that, but not, not back then. And Tupper's like, okay, see, look now it's more about her than the product. Mm. And then what finally did it was, I mean, Brownie was at the height of her glory. This is July of 57. She had bought an Island in the middle of Lake Toho down in Kissimmee and decided to have all of the highest performing distributors for a luau on the Island. And her son takes them out on this barge and they're having a good time. But we all know what happens in the summertime come about four five, six o'clock massive thunderstorms. <laughs> and there were boat accidents. Uh, some people were injured. Oh, gee. And oh, no. Tupper heard about it and was furious. And what I was able to do was go down to the courthouse and unseal these depositions that had been sealed for many years and, really see exactly what happened and the aftermath. So that's when Tupper decided, okay, she's got to go. Huh. How much give or take was she making at her peak from this enough to buy a private Island? Obviously that's, that's well, no... if you, you know, I, I think it was in the uh, 40 to $50,000 range per year. And that's pretty doggone good money in 1957, yeah. but the people really making the big bucks were the distributors. Oh yeah. And see Brownie didn't have, Um, stock options. She didn't have a contract. It wasn't built into her plan B that she would have some sort of golden parachute if things would go awry. 
So when Tupper decided, okay, I've had it with her, he went down early in 58 and just said, she's out of here. I'm going to fire her. She's done. Hmm. How did she react to that? Not well. Tupper had this clandestine meeting of some of his other top guys, including Gary McDonald, who had been with Brownie since the very beginning. And they were at the Angebuild Hotel in downtown Orlando. And they all met and Tupper said, I'm going out there today to fire her. Wow. That's it. She's gone. I'm sick of her. And, you know, some of it was because of what happened out at the Jubilee with the boat accidents. There were a lot of lawsuits that resulted from injuries, et cetera. And, you know, Gary, there were a couple of guys from that meeting who I was lucky enough to interview for this book. And they said, we told him, you can't do that. You can't just fire her. You know, she's got thousands of viewers who, you know, think she hung the moon. So finally they came. Didn't she, didn't she, was she the first woman to make the cover of a business week or something? She sure was in April of 1954. That's absolutely right. And remember Tupper had signed off on her being Mm -hmm. the quote unquote it girl. Cosmo, you know, the Washington Post, you just go all these different huge publications. Browning was all over it. So you're right. And this was a fawning, wonderful piece of publicity in Business Week that they practically wrote themselves. So, yeah, that that is important to talk about. I mean, she was just a demigod around Central Florida. So basically, Tupper said, "Okay, I won't go fire her today. But they came up with this cynical semi-retirement plan that they basically were just pushing her out. And when they finally, you know, things came to a head, Brownie sued. And as a settlement, she got thirty five thousand dollars, roughly that, which was a year's salary. They kicked her out of the wonderful lakeside home that she had that she called Water's Edge. And uh, she was gone. She was done. And she tried to bring some of the dealers with her with a new company, a cosmetics company that she launched, but it just wasn't the same. Hmm. And because uh, of the product, because the product right, wasn't as good. That's exactly right. And and the people had the confidence in Tupperware that they just didn't, and they weren't going to be a cult of personality for her. They had families to support, so a lot a lot of them didn't go with her. And that's not to say she was a pauper. I mean, she lived in a nice home on Lake Toho for many years afterwards. And I was lucky enough to go interview her son, Jerry. And this was the last interview he gave. This was after the early 2000 tornadoes, 2004. And I, I'll never forget going with him into there. They, they, they threw pottery together. They had a pottery studio. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to go in there with me. And he hadn't been in there in years. And just to see him going through her publicity shots and all this other stuff, was pretty amazing. A bunch of her award-winning pottery was there. So it's not like Brownie died a pauper or anything, but she was never welcomed back to Tupperware. And she was basically written out of the company history for decades. Amazing. That seems very vindictive just to, to not just push her out, but to erase her from, from all memory at, at Tupperware. Earl Tupper was the one who made sure that that happened. And then some of the people who came after who had clashed with Brownie took particular glee in not mentioning her around the campus anymore and uh, writing notes to Tupper saying, oh, did you see that Mrs. Wise's latest company failed and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's one thing to part company, but it's another to erase her from the history. And I'm happy to say these days that's not the case. And that if you go down to their chain of confidence center is what they've been calling it. It's basically a museum. (laughs) She is on right there on the same level as Tupper as she should be. 
What was the effect of her leaving on this whole distributor network and chain that she was so responsible for putting together and recruiting and motivating? A lot of them really wondered what is going on. And they had basically gotten Brownie to play ball to the extent of saying, oh, I'm going into semi-retirement now making it sort of look like it was her decision. And then once they pushed her out, she filed suit. But by then the damage was done. And like I said, these people who were her devoted dealers had families to raise and they couldn't just they say, oh, money. well, Brownie's leaving. I'm going to quit. No, they had bills yeah. to pay. So they just had to, yeah. to muddle through. Mm. How much of the animosity towards her was personal and how much of it was based on men dealing with a, a woman who had succeeded? In such an unlikely time and place. I think with with one of the particular people who succeeded her, that was very much the case. I think there was a lot of misogyny going on. But in terms of Wise and Tupper, he just didn't like the fact that he thought her eye was off the ball. And they clashed a lot. And then, you know, he had a legitimate beef when they had all these accidents at that Jubilee on her island. You know, he said she jeopardized the main business of this company with all of these high flying distributors out on her Island and they can't get, get them off. There's no cover. There are these storms coming in. It was a disaster and they had to really pull in a lot of favors with the local media to get it quashed, which Mm. most of it was. Now you mentioned about the, the, the Tupperware museum. What, what, if I go there today, what would I find? The last time I was there, um, it it really is an interesting history of the evolution of the product, starting with the millionaire line and taking off from there. And it has a a, a nice uh, display area for Earl Tupper and talking about, he was a genius, by the way. He had the goal of being a millionaire by the time he was 30 or 35, and and he darn near achieved it. So none of it could have happened without his first proprietary product. And, and that's sort of the sense of what this area is for Tupper. And then for Brownie, it's like, okay, if he was the yin, here's how she was the yang. It really is an interesting place to visit and to see that this, they really were the magic kingdom before Disney, to be honest <laughs> with you. And people would go park their cars along the Orange Blossom Trail to watch the fireworks that Tupperware would set off during the Jubilees. And a lot of people did very, very well by that company, including Brownie, until she and Tupper finally butted heads. And then, yep, time for the axe to fall. How much did the Jubilees and and other incentives like that influence people wanting to move to Florida and to to be Florida residents like Brownie? Yeah, I, I think a lot. You know, when you think about it, if you're coming from some snowbound suburb of Flint, Michigan, or in Brownie's case, you know, a suburb of Detroit. It was like her, like her son told me, you know, when they offered her the Florida territory, <laughs> he said, yeah, mom and I sat down, thought about it for a couple of seconds, said, yeah, we're going. You know, <laughs> the sunshine, you know, that was part of the appeal to the dealers was just the endless sunshine and the beautiful lakes. And, you know, you're coming to this fairy tale area to, you know, support your kids. So, yeah, that was that was a big part of the sell, no doubt about it. Does Tupperware have distributors still who do in-home sales like this and, and parties uh, of some, not probably not exactly the way it was back in the 50s, but is that still a sales model for them? Well, I, what I like to say about that is I read a New York Times article not too awfully long ago where they were talking about a woman in Indonesia who had gotten permission from her husband to, to be a, you know, a Tupperware brand's dealer. And she was so successful, he ended up working for her. 
Hmm. So, you know, and after Tupper sold the company for $16 million, by the way, in 1958, after Brownie took the settlement of about 35,000, Justin Dart from Rexall Drugs came in and said, okay, you guys need to take this international. And that's what they did to keep expanding their horizon. So yes, now it's worldwide. And, you know, even women in, in developing countries are able to have parties and sell the product, which became ubiquitous for us all the way back in the 50s. I want to make sure I get the timeline straight here. So he pushed Brownie Weiss out, paid her off a year's salary, and then turned around and sold the company for $16 million? Almost like he'd planned it. Yeah, he, wow. <laughs> he, he, oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. The company was much less attractive to buy if you've got some strong-willed woman running the sales division. Tupper had been concerned that taxes could eat up his fortune. So this was all part of the bigger plan, getting rid of her. Astonishing how quickly this all happened. The company moved to Florida in 51, sold in 58. And this is not today where the cycle of life is so incredibly fast. I mean, you're long before the jet airplane travel is commonplace, (laughs) let alone the internet or cell phones. I mean, this is a a shooting star of a story that unfolds in in less than a decade. Wow, that's really surprising to me. Oh, yeah. And and what I find compelling is knowing the humble roots they started with. It was literally Brownie coming down here with Gary McDonald, who was the, her you know sales recruiting guy and a green eye shade bookkeeper. And that was it. You know, Brownie got a mm. house on Dubs Dread Golf Course. It's in fact, it's still there. I'd love to see it landmark someday. <laughs> and and from all of that, you know, just good old American know-how and and business savvy and esprit de corps and a product that was revolutionary. You see the mushroom cloud that was Tupperware's success throughout the early mid-50s. It never stopped, really. Wow. Talk to me about that the house about you mentioned about landmarking it. You've got some experience in that line. You, you helped to preserve Jack Kerouac's house in Orlando. What would it take to, to make Brownie Weiss's home into a, a local I wouldn't think it would take landmark. much. No, it's a private residence. In fact, um, the gentleman who owns it has done a beautiful job. It's this gorgeous Art Deco ranch type house on Dubs Dread Circle, right near the old golf course. And uh, if they wanted to make it a Florida heritage site, I think it would be a no-brainer because this is really where the whole um, home company started Tupperware home parties company in Florida. So all, if he's listening, all he has to do is ask <laughs> and, uh, college park over there in Orlando would have its new uh, next new landmark. I would say within the next year or two, no doubt about it. And we, we talk about the influence of this business model just on Tupperware, but like you said, it would expand Mary Kay cosmetics. And I mean, the, Hundreds of thousands of women having jobs like this, not specifically for Tupperware, but selling items out of their home all over the country. I mean, it was really not only a revolutionary product, obviously, but a revolutionary business model. Well, that's why I have a friend who sells purses that way. Yeah, really. Knives to this day. Yeah. Spices (laughs) and heaven knows what else. But that's that shows even if, if Brownie says she wasn't a liberator, it certainly had that effect. Um, in fact, the, the woman who came sort of in Brownie's wake, this very sweet, wonderful, she'd been a homemaker up in Deland, Elsie Mortland. Mm-hmm. She ended up being like the chief hostess demonstrator who would go into all of these countries all around the world to show prospective dealers how to, you know, burp the bowl and do all of that stuff. And again, this was 
this is a lady who said, you know, before that, I, you know, I just cleaned up the kitchen and, you know, mopped <laughs> the floors. And then I got into Tupperware and, you know, it was almost like this whirlwind and it had a very feminizing effect throughout the United States and today the world. You and I talked about this a little bit before we started doing the podcast that despite her tremendous achievements, Brownie is still not, she's not in the Florida Women's Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. I've nominated her at least a half a dozen times. Mm. She made it to the finals, but I believe it was Governor Rick Scott who who picked somebody else. But, you know, it, it, it's high time. You know, think about it. Brownie was a single mom. She'd been abused by her husband um, back in the day and just picked herself up by the proverbial bootstraps, found a career and, you know, became a legend. I dare say that Central Florida would look dramatically different if it weren't for Tupperware home parties and now Tupperware brands coming here. And arguably, you could say the one person, if anybody, to point to that success and transformation is Brownie Wise. So to think she's not the Florida Hall, Hall the Florida Women's Hall of Fame, it's, it's really kind of laughable at this point. Yeah. yeah, this may be a sensitive subject. I hope not. But will there be a movie made of this book? Funny you mention that. <laughs> Well, back in the day, in uh, well, all the way back in 2014, Sony Motion Pictures had bought the rights to this, and Sandra Bullock was going to play Brown. Oh my gosh! And Tate Taylor, the the director of that wonderful film, The Help, he had a whole screenplay written. Hmm. And then there was that film that came out mocking what was it, the North Korean uh, uh, oh, the dictator, interview? the interview. And then, lo and behold. Sony suffered a horrendous hack that I believe it was it was from North Korea. And as a result, the head of the studio was let go and plans for the film fell apart. So but there are still some plans that could get it uh, a treatment elsewhere. Who knows? Maybe Broadway, for instance. Fingers wow. crossed, because I think it, crossed. I think it's a great it's a great story. It's a great story. I think people would love it. Brownie's a pretty amazing woman. And, you know, the other sad thing about it is when Brownie died, uh, she ended up buried in an unmarked grave. Jeez. Oh, my God. It's down there off Pleasant Hill Road in Kissimmee in a cemetery. But not only is she not in the Florida Women's Hall of Fame, not only has she never gotten the recognition that many feel she truly deserves. You don't even know where to find her her grave. Okay, so 1958, the company is sold not long after she took this buyout. How long did she live after that? She lived until 1992. Okay, so a long, long time. Or, oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. She was well known. She stayed in Kissimmee, lived on, on the shores of Lake Toho. I interviewed a number of her friends. And after she died mm. and her son, Jerry, died, that was pretty much it. And yeah, they're both down there in that cemetery up Pleasant Hill Road. Was there a New York Times obituary? Or did she? Did people remember her? When she died? Well, you know, it's, it, that brings up an interesting story, Craig. Um, I bought her self-help book online, Best Wishes. I bought a first edition hardback of it. And in it, she had signed an autograph to a local writer who had done a story on her, a writer for the Orlando Sentinel named Don Boyette. And then when she died, Don wrote her obituary. Oh, my. <laughs> and it was wonderful. So yeah. I, I know it ran locally for sure, but I, I don't know if it ran nationally, to be honest with you. I only ask because I know the New York Times is now going back and writing belated obituaries for a lot of prominent people who prominent women who died. And she would be one of obituaries. Them. Yeah, she would definitely be one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bob Keeling has been our guest. Life of the Party, the remarkable story of how Brownie Wise built and lost 
a Tupperware party empire. That is the book. Check it out first at your local independent bookseller. If they don't have it, amazon.com will. And Bob is going to be speaking August 12th. That's a Thursday night at the St. Pete Museum of History about this topic. So if you want to learn more and ask your own questions, St. Pete Museum of History, August 12th, that's the place to find it and do it. And, and will you be giving burping demonstrations at that, at that event? <laughs> you mean with the product or just generally? <laughs> Whichever works, whichever you prefer. <laughs> well, you know, it is a history and happy hour with the historian, so it's entirely possible. Great. Bob Keeling, Life of the Party, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been enlightening. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Bob. I had a great time. Thanks. You bet. Craig, I use Tupperware or Tupperware-like products almost every day. I am a huge leftover guy and regularly will cook you know my meals for the entire yeah. week on a on a Sunday or Monday and, and live out of the Tupperware for the remainder of the week. Yeah, I think I think just about everybody in America is like that, just about, you know, it's it's we all uh you know, especially during the pandemic, people were ordering lots of takeout food mm. and you don't finish it. What are you gonna do with it? Well, you know, you put it in one of those plastic containers and stick it in the fridge till you till the next yeah. meal. So. And Tupperware is one of those few products, very few products like Kleenex or Band-Aid where the brand name is now synonymous with the object. Yeah. You know, or Xerox. The, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I mean, see, that's the thing is people think people may think Tupperware. They don't think Florida. No, but they should. Yeah, they definitely should. I, I have to tell you a funny story about this, though. And this is this will be in my next book too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state you're in. Uh, I wrote a story. These two scientists up in the Florida panhandle, they discovered a new species up there. Uh, uh, people up there had been calling it the leopard eel, and they thought it was they thought it was mythical, like the skunk ape. <laughs> Turned out it was real. It was this. They they call it the the scientists actually named it a reticulated siren. And when they caught one, the guy who caught it initially put it in a bucket and then took it home. And then once he got it home, he put it in a Tupperware container. Mm-hmm. to keep it you know to, and and so i wrote that in the story well about three or four weeks after the story runs i get a letter from a new york patent attorney saying i want to make sure that when you use the word tupperware you were actually referring to a tupperware product because if you weren't then you are violating the trademark <laughs> for, for my client and i yeah. wrote him i wrote him back this sort of cheeky letter saying the scientist told me it was tupperware and uh so you know being a very accurate reporter i quoted him saying tupperware and not some Tupperware-like product, so we were not at all trying to target your your client's trademark. And in fact, because I know Tupperware is a Florida company, I would never do that. And I would strongly encourage you to get this scientist and recruit him as a spokesman for your product. <laughs> Tell his fellow scientists, hey, if you happen to find a slimy creature you want to you want to keep, put it in Tupperware. It's safe there. <laughs> Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>